This podcast is supported by Siemens, your partner for industrial-grade AI. Hi there, welcome to a new episode of the Industrial AI Podcast. My name is Peter Seberg. My guest today is Daniele Gamba. He's adjunct professor of machine learning and CEO at AISend. You already suggested he's very interested to hear how I pronounce the name of his company. Mm -hmm. uh, and he can comment on that in just a couple of seconds. Our topic today is going to be AI algorithms for industrial applications. Hello, Daniela. Hi, Peter. Hi. It's a pleasure to be here. What did you think of my pronunciation of your company name? <laughs> yes, as I was telling you before, every customer of ours pronounces our name differently. So we have this joke inside that uh, it's a miracle that someone actually find us on Google. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Don't worry about that. Uh, anyway, we'll, we'll do that later on as well. But uh, A-I-S-E-N-T. A -I -S -E -N -T. So, Daniela, please introduce yourself to our listeners and let us know what you do at, tell us a bit about your company, AISend. Yes. So, I correct, I'm uh, the CEO of iSend and I'm also adjunct professor of machine learning at the University of Bergamo in Italy. I mostly work with, with AI to solve industrial problems. So, my company was born uh, five years ago. We are no longer a startup in Italy. We are just an SME. And we try to, to provide our customers with solutions that are heavily based on AI algorithms. So, we have this experience since we were researchers in the university. The founder team was, was all the researchers and professors and PhDs. And then we were doing applied research for industrial use cases using AI and uh, with two different topics, uh, main topics for us. That are one is computer vision uh, with all the processing of images, videos, uh, 2D, 3Ds, sensors. And the other one, the other part of the team uh, is related to time series uh, and, uh, and mathematical modeling. So these are the two main topics we work on. And we work on providing our customer with the, uh, the, the final solution, the complete solution, whether this is uh, an industrial machinery or just the algorithm, but with the aim to, let's say, create more um, autonomous industries. So we see in a, in a lot of customers and a lot of industries, a lot of work doing by, done by the people that is uh, heavily automatizable. I don't know if it's the correct term. I understand what you mean, yeah, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, there are many work, many tasks that are inhuman, and we want people just to focus on the more human tasks and not doing the robot job. Also, here in Italy, we, we feel very much lack of uh, new operators, lack of, uh, of personnel in the industries, and the lack of expertise also. It's, it's a very, very important topic for us. So we try to build this kind of solution that could be computer vision, could be mathematical modeling, that allows the, the current operators of the, of the industries to perform tasks that are more human-like and um, human-friendly and not robot, uh, <laughs> robotic tasks. Okay. 
Sounds great. I'm sure we'll be we'll be discussing both the computer vision side as well, the modeling. You know, a lot of a lot is happening in modeling, applied research in the Bergamo area. Uh, I want to come back to that later on as well. As you live south of the Alps, I live just north of the Alps, but we'll do that later. And before we get into more details of um, industrial of uh, AI algorithms in the industrial area. Maybe you want to share with our listeners the, uh, let's say, the bandwidth of uh, your AI-type markets, sectors, and solutions, which I believe is wider than just industrial, right? Yeah, correct. We mostly focus on three segments. Uh, uh, one in defense, where we have uh, Leonardo as a customer, the main Italian defense company. We have a, a few customers in transportations, and most of the customers in uh, manufacturing industrial industries, both with the OEMs, machine builders, and the final customer. Okay, so I understand that as a, you, you're not a starter, but you know, but as a starter use case, maybe. So you concentrate, you do a lot in production quality improvement. Maybe you want to share with us a use case or two, you know, what, where, how, what the result has been, because that's, of course, always uh, I believe it's the entry use case for most listeners, right? Yes. We have a lot of uh, use cases in industrial quality control because most of the time it is a human job to like perform quality checks on, uh, let's say, plastic packaging. And uh, this kind of application resulting in a build uh, of, a, of a machinery with the industrial cameras, illuminators, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And obviously... The main part is the AI algorithms that interprets and and understand the products uh, and understand what is considered uh, a defect, a uh, fault or not. This uh, application, obviously, we built a lot of machinery for, for these uh, different sectors, uh, like uh, in a heat sealing, plastic packaging, polyurethane uh, panels, luxury items, vials in pharmaceutical application. So a lot of application, but in the core, we always see the struggle of our customers in using technologies that are more related to the human interpretation of what, of what you're seeing and less uh, like mechanical specification. Okay, we have this kind of defects, in the, is, is it visible, etc. And in these cases, let's say in plastic packaging, for example, or in food inspection, most of the time we implement the machine, we, we make it running production in our customer plant, and we start collecting data. And these data are not used continuously, I would say. Something very peculiar I've seen uh, many times, but sometimes it uh, allows our customer to address the root cause the, of the, the implementing defect that is uh, producing defects. This is the main... Uh, Sometimes it's hard to measure the quality improvement that the vision system and the quality inspection system allows you to do because it's so sharp, the changes where uh, we can collect data and uh, tell back our customer, okay, I think uh, this could be the problem or this is the data we collect from you. And sometimes there is the epiphany and there's a realization in our customers that, says, oh, okay, is that problem? Is that, uh, 
I know where to, to put the uh, where to fix the process. Sometimes it's easy to fix, but sometimes it's way too difficult engineering. And then, then maybe they wait until the next generation and you put in their your model to make sure that it doesn't happen again or yeah, yes. In a quality inspection we mostly discard the products and uh, collect the data about what was the fault that resulted in the discard. Uh, also in steel production we have a lot of application in inspecting uh, steel products that can be solved, uh, the, the defects can, can be solved on the process. And sometimes it requires more just a moment of understanding of your process and not uh, it's not a process that you have to do continuously. It's sometimes just uh, stopping your activity, stopping the quality laboratory and just, uh, okay, we have this data just look at, let's look into the process to understand what is the root cause that is producing so many defects. Right. So you mentioned a couple of times now that you're involved in packaging. So is it where you're based, Bergamo? Is that part or close to the wider area of, I think, what is being called the packaging valley? Is that right? Yes, so it's 100 kilometers, I think, I mean, 100 or 200 kilometers. The Packaging Valley, is, it's a lot of OEMs, producers of machinery. We work a lot with their finals. We work a lot with, with the final customer that implementing the inspection of the products coming out from the machine. Yeah, but again, as I suggested before, I mean, it's been some time, but as I, living north of the Alps, would drive over the Alps and arrive into the, uh, the Po Delta, right, and I would recall... <laughs> That as I was more kind of involved in industrial, uh, pure applications, that I would be driving into the packaging a valley kind of thing, right? Yeah. The, the second application that you did not mention here, that's another one where maybe the other, one or the other person can relate to is uh, you do predictive maintenance on marble cutting machines. And this is beautiful picture and those of you listeners who may have been, you know, uh, for business reasons or maybe for, you know, private holiday reasons in the same area, I believe, but you want to correct that, if not, Daniele, uh, you may have visited one of these, what is it, marble uh, cutting yeah, areas where, you know, you you cut big pieces of marble out of the, <laughs> yes. out of the, what is it? No, or the, or the mountain itself. Or the mountain itself. So what do you do there then? How can al industrial algorithms help to improve the marble cutting? Yes, in marble cutting, but in many cases, uh, OEMs struggle to do predictive maintenance. Uh, and we built uh, quite a few algorithms uh, and uh, published uh, quite a lot of publications of articles uh, on journals uh, about uh, predictive maintenance. Because of sometimes, or most of the times, uh, collecting data is a, is a real struggle, obviously. Because to predict uh, how many hours uh, you, you've left uh, on that component, uh, you should have seen at least a couple of components degrading their performance during time, you know. And this event, collecting this data, is very expensive is in time of uh, effort of our customer. So... In marble, but also, also with the CNC, uh, let's say, contra-numeric uh, work uh, and um, big OEMs, we worked a lot to create synthetic data of the degradation of performance of the components so we can uh, 
generate a lot of data, a lot of uh, tracks that enables the, the algorithms to learn, uh, to predict for how much uh, time is left for, for that component. Tell us a bit more about that, because we've heard that many times before, and, and I always question, but maybe I heard the reason for it already. Synthetic data means that you simulate the yes. cutting, in this case, the marble cutting situation in the lab, I don't know, at the customer side or with you. And then instead of needing to go into the marble cutting side and taking the real data, but here I stop. So tell us a little bit about the use of synthetic data. Yeah. Yes, it is correct. We collect uh, a lot of data of, of same machines, of new machines that, let's say, in FAT tests uh, before shipping to the customer. We know they're good. They work perfectly fine. And we can collect easily a lot of data in testing, in uh, cycles. And um, then we, we study the behavior of degrading components. And we study it from a physical aspect, obviously, but also in, uh, from, uh, let's say, few samples uh, that we, we can collect from the field, from, uh, from actual working machine. And once we have this true information, our, our team of data scientists can design a, an easier algorithm, let's say, that emulates the same degradation, the same signals, maybe on the torque of the, of the motor, maybe on uh, vibrations, uh, and uh, try to use these uh, similar algorithms uh, to emulate and to simulate the uh, degradation of performance. With these uh, two information, so same tracks, same samples from the new machine and uh, this simulation of degradation, we can generate a lot of quite a lot of data that can be used by an algorithm, a, a predictive maintenance algorithm, to estimate the remaining time. But in the end, it is synthetic, right? It's uh, yeah. it's not the real thing, correct? Like what what I'm what I'm thinking of now. So if you would have to go, and maybe you can sometimes, but not often, go into let's stay to the stick to the marble cutting. I mean, it's a very dangerous kind of environment. I guess there is explosions. I believe every now and then to get the marble out but, and stuff like that. So many of those real life values, let's say, you don't get. But still, so you, you do the simulation, the synthetic data in the lab, so to say, and then at least you have a starting point for, you know, doing, for applying them into the, into the field. Yes. And an application with a, with a big OEM, it resulted quite a lot accurate also, the synthetic data was very, very well performing. And in six months, we completely built like 10 different algorithms for 10 different problems that the, in this case, the CNC machine was adding and performing like predictive maintenance on 10 different components in just six months of, of projects. What relying on synthetic data and obviously the same data that customer was wanting uh, us to do. Yeah, it's uh, it's a growing in a big market, and here you you are just sharing with us another um, a great example. I realize I think I was asked was it two or three years ago? I think there was a company who wanted to invest in another company. They were asking me about what I thought about synthetic data and. I didn't really have a view on it, I must say. And I've learned in the meantime a couple. And now the, the big example being, you know, if we talk about autonomous driving, you know, the child running in front of a car, you don't want to, you don't want to test that you know, in real life. It's, uh, you know, so of course you're going to try to do something synthetic. And today you give us another 
great example. Now, you talked a couple of times about uh, the algorithms. Now, before we get into the algorithms, I first want to know from you how you sell your algorithmic products. So do you sell actually algorithms? Do you sell a complete package with consulting? Do you have an embedded solution? Maybe you want to first talk about that. What is your offering to your potential customers? Yes, we do sell a complete package uh, that is including consulting and developing the project. Uh, since we have uh, a lot of experience uh, with different sectors, uh, it's easier for us to say benefits from different applications of the algorithms in uh, new challenges. And uh, so we do sell our experience both in the code of the algorithms and the consulting. And this is most for this kind of application for predictive maintenance. In the engine systems, uh, we, we do provide also the, the machinery itself. So we do provide the complete robot, uh, the cameras, uh, the, all the automation. Uh, we try to build, uh, we are a machine builder uh, of our own for quality inspection application. So yes, it's uh, different for different uh, markets. Okay. So it's not or never maybe just uh, an algorithm. You know, there's a job, there's a request, and one month later you, you send them an algorithm, a piece of software, and you say this costs uh, X, Y, Z. That's not the way it happens, right? But at the same time, it's also maybe, and we come to your Chandra, I think, so you do sell uh, solutions that are a combination of hardware, software. So in that case, Maybe they are kind of off the shelf. What what I'm getting at is like, you know, when we started this, let's say, industrial AI data stuff, I myself, five, six, seven years ago, there was nothing was, I mean, it was completely new. And now it's still, depending on the market in which we're in, it's still more or less new or other markets are already used to it. And you could never do anything without consulting. So that's what I'm getting at. So are there sections, pieces of your sector's markets where you say, no, we have a solution that is already off the shelf that they can buy as such, maybe your Chandra is one. And in other cases, we still need to do the consulting because the markets, the people in the markets have, have yet not uh, an understanding of what this is all about. Yes, it is clearly correct, uh, the, the way we proceed. So Chandra is our full stack application for quality inspection and enable our customers to train their own uh, algorithms for quality inspection and to provide it on, on quality machines. And uh, I just uh, closed a, a very big sale with a, with a customer, with a competitor, let's say, the producing uh, himself uh, quality inspection machineries that, uh, that will adopt the Chandra as, uh, as its core because uh, he understood uh, the quality of, uh, of the work we did in these uh, years. Okay. Nevertheless, then let's maybe, yeah, you, you shouldn't go too detailed because that's not what we're about here in the industry. No, but nevertheless, you know, I mean, if our headline today theme is about, you know, AI algorithms, talk a little bit about the algorithms, like on a top level, are they supervised, unsupervised? Is there one or two where you say, I need to mention that name because that is the always the winning one? Or, or what can you say at a relatively high level ab about the algorithms, how you develop them, what they are, are they based, are they open source, are they your own ownership, etc. Yeah. One thing it's important to mention is that uh, synthetic data is uh, quite a lot important, not only in time series, not only in modeling and predictive maintenance, but also in images. 
and uh, you were telling about the child running in front of the car. We do the same with the faults uh, on quality inspection, uh, on robot guidance. We generate quite a lot of, of synthetic data. And the synthetic data enables us to pre-train most of our algorithms, uh, both, let's say, anomaly detection, so unsupervised learning and, and understanding what's wrong, what's uh, anomalous with the objects that we are looking at, but also supervise the synthetic defects. So injecting uh, fake faults into the images, into the, the, the collected uh, sensors and trying uh, and having that it's already labeled, you know, because we inject the fault and we already know and the algorithm already knows where is the defect. So it's very useful and very challenging for us also because we have to, let's say, write every time few libraries that enables us to recreate that fault that can be very strange. In plastic packaging, we had a lot of thickness problems due to recycled materials. And um, we try to recreate these thickness anomalies into the, the images uh, we collect from, from the sensor. So this is a crucial point because it uh, enables us to, uh, let's say, take 10, 20, 30 pictures of same products and then generate 10,000 images with the different applied uh, synthetic defects. Uh, and this is a very, very important one for training then the, obviously, both the anomaly detection algorithms then and the supervised object detection, object segmentation algorithms. We do develop uh, algorithms of our own. We obviously started from, from the most notorious papers, but the research part is... Uh, is quite important uh, in, in iSend. And uh, we do a lot of uh, edge computing for NVIDIA boards. Right. So I wasn't going to talk about cloud or edge. It's just because, because Robert, my colleague, has been telling me that I, I've kept on talking about the edge for three or four years. <laughs> right now. Uh, but, but, but do share with us then the Italian market. I mean, why are you, if I understand, concentrating, maybe not exclusively, but... What is the re how big is the share, let's say, of your total revenue of edge uh, solutions and cloud solutions? And tell us a little bit about why your customers, you know, then choose or are interested in the edge solution. Yes, uh, right now it's about eighty percent uh, on edge and twenty in cloud. The cloud part will grow with a new project we will launch this year. But most of the time we have to be very reliable in our uh, prediction. It, in industrial AI, we obviously we have to be very robust, uh, very reliable, uh, close to real time. Obviously, not not perfectly real time, but close to real time. So having a, a reliable Edge hardware enables us to forget about the internet connection, forget about everything else, uh, and just uh, be sure that the, the Edge device will perform uh, its job uh, autonomously. Okay, sounds great. I recall, I haven't talked about it for quite some time, but as you remind me now, I think it was a, like a year ago when the the European Union, and you may recall, uh, is it one of the top in this gay guys? There is a number of women. This the second or third in command, European Commission, and he he is the former CEO of a French IT company. I'm just saying it like this, maybe you know him. And he was exactly giving out the directive to change uh, in general, you know, not just the AI solutions based on cloud, which he said at that time was eighty. 
2020 edge and he wanted that exactly at least for the european market to change towards 2080 or 8020 and now you you are you seem already to be at exactly the solution where he wanted us to go and i was a big supporter of that now uh, we are a global uh, podcast here so i want not we leave in the end you know the decision to go with edge and or and there's another topic which i would like you then to comment on but let's say with this first is like, you know, if the customers uh, prefer for whatever reason cloud, they should do that. And if they prefer to go edge, they should do that. And, and we are agnostic here. So, but as you, you were saying, because we like to talk about industrial grade, it's a term that uh, Boris Scharner from Siemens kind of, I believe, has come up with. And most certainly a part of this industrial grade is, as you say, you know, needs to be close to being real-time, maybe you can talk about that a little bit more. Is, is that what customers come to you with as a request? Yes, I think it's uh, one of the main topics to be not only real-time, but also to be very reliable and uh, to be to perform always uh, within the same way. And if something changes, uh, we do expect the algorithms to or adapt or to perform slightly worse, but not completely worse. And having industrial building industrial application means that we have to build very robust algorithms, very, very reliable ones. And they have to be not only reliable, but also explainable. It's a, it's a trending topic in EU discussion, obviously. And also ChatGPT, very, very trending one. Oh, we come to that later. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously, we have to prove, and we will have to prove, but right now, some customer already asks us to prove the robustness of their model. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you're bringing me to the next topic, so I think you you were going to discuss it anyway because you and your former your colleagues, I believe, come to that later in the end to your team. But you are former researchers. From the University of Bergamo, you're still uh, yourself an adjunct uh, professor, machine learning, I understand. And you and your colleagues have published a, a number of papers. And one of them is machine learning models robustness. Uh, the other one will come to that in a moment. So uh, tell us a little bit more. You were in the stream anyway. So what is in there? What is about machine learning models robustness, I guess, also ex specifically for industrial grade applications? Yes, this was a research we did for a customer in blood treatment. And uh, obviously, since we were handling blood, uh, there was a lot of, uh, say, certification and, uh, and tests we had to provide to certify that the algorithm was telling us the, the correct answers, the correct prediction. Okay. And it was a supervised and regression problem. It was we were trying to understand a few parameters of the blood coming from the sensor of the machine. So we researched a lot what was the meaning of robustness, and we arrived at this uh, conclusion that is the ability to perform well enough uh, even if the, the environment changes. So even if our, there are few components that changes, there are few signals that changes, the algorithm has to, let's say, be wrong less, okay? While uh, on, uh, let's say, overfitted algorithms, uh, it's very easy to see that if something changes even a little bit, the algorithm uh, complete, is completely wrong in its prediction. 
So we developed and we designed this uh, robustness matrix that is just two integrals, so nothing crazy. But uh, in, in the paper you can find on Google Scholar, uh, it's I think it's on open access. You can see there is just this uh, this formula that uh, tries to bring and formalize the concept of robustness, and we implemented that in a TensorFlow callback. So. When we do train algorithms uh, and with a TensorFlow, for example, we have obviously the, the accuracy, the, the metrics uh, of, of our model, but we also have the robustness metrics. And this allows uh, my data scientists to understand if the, the model they're training, it will be r- robust enough to provide the consistent prediction in time. Right. Sounds a lot like the safety robustness that we talked about, I, th- I believe, with Airbus in the same area, you know, getting an even even higher level. And what what is interesting here is, you, I think you talked about the, the use case was actually blood, so medicine. Although we like to think of our, I mean, if I say our, we concentrate on industrial as industrial grade, as, you know, industrial grade, that's, you know, a very high level grade. And of course, implicitly, at least doctors, you know, people in the medical market, they have their uh, thought about what is, what is, you know, med- medical grade. Yes, <laughs> that, of course. And, and of course, the leading, maybe again, I've mentioned them before, but the leading drivers will be the European Commission in the end with the AI Act. And they're going to tell us, you know, which are the, the risk. Is that one? No, it's not the only one, but of course. And if they're going to say, you know, this is the way of finding out what is a highly risky AI application, that's then another, you know, let's say X, Y, great level of, there's going to be so many, maybe that's only a little, and that is the discussion where many people are afraid on one hand that they're not allowed to be do the things that they want to do with the AI, and maybe that's good or bad. We're not going to talk about that today. Uh, there's a second one, and that's also, you, you refer to it in the direction of explainable. Not sure you meant the same, but you did a paper on, on causal inference modeling, which we've talked about half a year ago as well. And it seems to be, in the meantime, also like a, like a huge uh, trendy, so to say, but good, important topic. Yes, it's causal inference. It's a very, very interesting, very, very trending topic because it's explainable in its definition. You know, you explicit all the variables, you explicit all the relationship within the data, and uh, then you can try to build a, a model uh, that uh, estimates a treatment or that predicts uh, some value, but is uh, ex- I think it's the most explainable AI we can we can try to to have right now with the, with the techniques uh, we we have, and we worked a lot on causal inference and uh, Bayesian modeling, and uh, we developed an algorithm that we, we believe uh, reason like we do. It's something that obviously in uh, in industrial application, uh, obviously in. Uh, very specific tasks uh, in like in troubleshooting uh, or in training uh, new operators. But uh, we aimed, uh, it's uh, a Hina Ralph project, uh, we aim to build this algorithm that reasons, uh, reason in troubleshooting like we do. So it will observe a few, a few things, uh, it will try to estimate these causes, and then it goes back to uh, observe other indicators uh, that uh, that could indicate that could point uh, towards a, a cause, and 
this is a very big project of ours because it enables our customers to digitalize the, the expertise of the most experienced operator. And some OEMs is already trying to build new business models where they sell the knowledge they have inside the company uh, to their customer. So uh, we, they, they try to digitalize the, their expertise that is inside of the people, that is a very uh, important part of the company, and to build a digital service that can be sold uh, as, a, as a service to, to their customer and to, like uh, interacting with a more uh, interesting uh, service, uh, more customer service, let's say, a more uh, uh, reasoning one, okay? Well, I was I was going to be moving into the next topic, generative chat, etc. And, and, and I was going to ask you exactly that because in the past, typically uh, until now, today, the it's the human expert, it's the domain expert who in the end has to confirm that whatever correlation, let's say at that level, a correlation first between what an algorithm has found, you know, one, two, three, four, five correlations. I've given this example a couple of times over the last couple of years, but it's, I think it still applies. And then the human expert, the best, as you say, human expert, will confirm, number one, no, that's no correlation and certainly no, um, no causal relation. Number two, oh, number three, yes. Oh, wow, interesting. That seems to be causal. Uh, and, and then the next question is going to be, and then we move into generative chat GPT and the stuff like that. Uh, is this a one-time opportunity we have in these years, so to say? As long as we have those experts, you were also saying like a lack of experts, lack of workforce maybe. Uh, you know, are, can, it's more phil philosophical questions, can algorithms in the future decide for themselves if, you know, other algorithms causal alg algorithms have found the correct causal relationships or not? Or can that only be done by humans? Uh, this, is, this is an interesting question. It's a very, very broad one. <laughs> so, okay. Let's start from um, generative. It is a one-time opportunity, correct, to digitalize the experience uh, of, of the most trained ones. And when they will retire, the... the there will be a lot of uh, lost uh, knowledge uh, that the companies will have to face. And uh, I've seen it in a, in a couple of customers. And when they lose their most trained ones uh, because they retire, it, it is a challenge for the company to be, grow back that kind of knowledge. And we think that with the Bayesian modeling, with, the, with our solution, it's easier to digitalize this experience and to design what the knowledge is about. And then we can leverage the, the power of the generative models like ChatGPT, you know. It's, I really share this opinion from, from Pablo Solman, it's a known hacker, well-known hacker, that his idea, ChatGPT, is not a revolution per se, because it's, in, let's say, chatbots uh, and uh, generative models also for text uh, exist in, uh, from, from quite a few years, but it's a revolution in design. It's a revolution in uh, user interfaces, you know? So 
we have this new powerful technology, this new powerful user interface that is text that reached a level that is usable now, let's say, and it's quite powerful, but it has to be alimented from deep knowledge. And uh, creating and digitalizing that knowledge is a challenge we have to to address now before before it's too late. And then we can easily take these new technologies, these new chatbots, and give them this knowledge that we have digitalized or just adding them to interact with, with um, let's say, a causal model. If we are to, to let the, them decide autonomously, <laughs> I think in a few cases it could be good. In most of the cases, it's maybe. Yeah, I would, I would hope that at least for the next uh, 10, 20 years, as long as I'm going to be part of this, uh, that humans are going to be using it as a tool. So in the end, it's always going to be the human. Yeah. Say, oh, no, uh, thank you very much. Uh, algorithm, mm-hmm. not at an algorithm level. Thank you very much, uh, chat GPT for this wonderful proposal, but uh, I'm not going to use it or I think it's wrong or it doesn't matter. I, we know that uh, the answering question side is, is many times wrong, right? Yes, most of the time, I think that these uh, tools will interface with people that uh, will have a lower knowledge, uh, let's say it's uh, younger operators that has to be trained. And then in, well, you will have this powerful tool to, to, to train, uh, to do troubleshooting, uh, even if you have just a few years of experience. It, it's different uh, from the most experienced one that uh, will always have uh, a deeper understanding of the problem so they can also be very critical about the prediction of the algorithm. But for most of the, uh, let's say, younger operators, most of the younger workers, uh, it will be, it will provide, I think, uh, a very good support uh, for like 90% of the cases. So it certainly feels like a revolution as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I look outside a window, the world is still standing, it's raining here today, (laughs) shouldn't have been. Well, although we say April does what it wants to. That's a very bad direct translation. <laughs> we Sometimes it's sunny here, sometimes it's rainy. I'm sure where you are, it's sunny, don't tell me. But, and, or agreeing with me, nevertheless, Italy has banned the use of chat GPT. I just thought about what do you, as a person living, as an Italian living in Italy, what do you think about that? Yes, we have the authority about uh, personal data protection. That banned, not clearly banned, because ChatGPT stopped the service in Italy after the, this authority request. And the concern was right, since uh, there is a, a regulation about uh, how you uh, interact with personal data. So it was uh, like illegal uh, in Italy and that kind of service uh, in, in that way, in the way they, they implemented uh, ChatGPT. But at some point, I, I really don't understand a lot of the, the discussion about this because the APIs, uh, all the services are still on and you can easily access them. It's just the, it's just the web interface. So, uh, so, so I was thinking, not sure how you can ban something like that. I mean, we've heard about China and I say that always very objectively, there is never a value related, to, but we hear about how maybe the Chinese government wants to block certain things and then uh, maybe they do that by, or, or then the Chinese users maybe, and also here, you're very welcome, Chinese users, 
uh, listeners get it anyway through a VPN. So that was one thing I was thinking, how can you block these days access to web applications? No, you cannot. You cannot. Okay, okay. <laughs> and you cannot block this kind of... <laughs> Uh, but I think uh, the companies, the industries, has to think, stop and think about uh, for a moment how we do implement this service inside our processes. Because it's a huge fact and it's uh, really important to understand when and where and how we can leverage the powerful uh, ChatGPT and one of the many GPT's models inside our processes to, to, to do our work right now faster and better, but clearly knowing that the data we share also in Italy is, could be, could be sensitive data. And Samsung, I think, did a very important data leakage, uh, some trouble with it, with some operator, some, some employee inputting into chat GPT. Sensitive information, industrial <laughs> protection. It's a hiccup, I guess, but it will not happen in the future because I'm a big believer of, you know, companies. And that was somebody else again suggesting yesterday. There's 1,000 new proposals every day, right? I don't understand how you can find half an hour to chat with me. <laughs> <laughs> and then I am a strong believer of what that person on LinkedIn, I think, was saying is to say, sure, in the future, we're not going to have webs, normal websites. We're going to have just an interface and very important. Uh, so many things that come together. Sam uh, Altman, right? OpenAI boss. He was part of a group of people from OpenAI talking to the Italian regulators. Uh, just that's on the side. And he, in another interview, YouTube with uh, Lex Fripman, was saying that uh, he also thought uh, 10, 20, you know, 100 years further, if we were going to look back and this was a time where we say there was something big happening, which was it, he would agree with what you just said, a chat GPT, so the user interface, that was the big, uh, that was the big change. So, so many things happening. And if companies are going to have a chat GPT kind of user interface on top of their own data, whatever the data is, then that you don't need websites anymore. And then, of course, coming back to the Samsung, it's very important. <laughs> That whatever you put in, feed in, uh, you know, is not going to be brought back to the general public uh, open space, especially not if you're something and designing chips, for example. Yeah, yeah, correct. Oh, Daniela, we need to come to a close. Tell us a little bit about your team. Who are you working with? What do each of you do in the wonderful city of Bergamo in Italy? Yeah, we are uh, 20 people, close to 20 people now, and uh, we have a uh, quite an important presence of PhDs because the research part is still in our DNA. So yeah, we have like a third of the, of the employees have at least a PhD. Uh, the other part is mostly related on data scientists, uh, machine, machine learning engineers and computer vision engineers. So a few of the founders are still in the, in the academy world, still in the, in the university as researchers or as, as professors. Me, myself, as a junk professor, so just a contract for a couple of years. But we really work closely to the research world, not just the University of Bergamo, but with other universities also abroad to be very active and in, in research and uh, trying to experiment in the industries what the research uh, provides. 
So, as I assume all of you are well connected in the Italian, you know, market sectors we talked about now, with an interest specifically, of course, in industrial, but also as many of you are uh, PhDs and researchers globally, where then are we standing as far as, you know, what we talked about, AI algorithms soon to be moving into generative chat GPT? Where are we standing? Where are we standing, you in Italy, in Europe, in relation to United States, China, uh, Asia, and and how do you see this position, this state is in which we're in today? How do you see that changing over the next, you know, a couple of years? It's really a challenging question. Obviously, uh, I think it's an evolving market. So where competence and having a few years experience in applying AI in industrial cases is very important to understand the changes we're facing. Otherwise, uh, it's easy to fall uh, into the new mood, the new, new trending topics uh, with and losing uh, the, the bigger and broader perspective on, on AI and on the real business use cases uh, we have to, to obviously uh, solve and to provide value clearly to, to our customers. So having this challenging market that is uh, continuously evolving requires us to be attached to the to research. And researchers, uh, obviously, in the United States, uh, in, in Europe, I've seen a lot of beautiful publication in, uh, in AI, in both in, in France, for example, in Italy, in Germany. So I think Europe is having a, a more... European approach to AI, more, let's say, stable and reasoned approach, while other countries in the world are more running towards uh, creating uh, something that is uh, more and more powerful. And new, this will change a lot. And uh, we are sure that there will be a lot of changes and uh, the, having this dream to let the people do the same more human work and uh, leave more human work to robots and to algorithms is something that allows uh, our companies to be more productive uh, and to be more local, probably within its production, because most of the time-consuming and expensive tasks in uh, in Eastern markets. Uh, could be automated in some way and something that I think is uh, quite important. And uh, allow humans to feel what more human-like, whatever that is. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Enjoy the wonderful Italian life, for example. This morning I had a song, I'm not going to sing it loud, but it's like, mare, mare, mare. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> And that's the song about, maybe you know who it's from. <laughs> it's about the Italian at the sea, right? Yes, correct. In Italy. Daniela, thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. giving us this, um, this Italian uh, perspective on AI, on generative, on causal, on robustness. Really great to hear. Great to hear what you're, what you're doing. If you listeners want to get in touch with Daniela, can you do that by LinkedIn best or? 
Yes, LinkedIn is fine. Also, also via mail, uh, via via ChatGPT, it's so fine. If Daniele Gamba, D A N I E L E, Daniele Gamba, G A M B A, or AI Send as the company name, A I S E N T. We'll put both of them in the podcast notes as well. Otherwise, dear listeners, if you have any questions or comments, as always, please send a short email to me to Peter at AIPod.de. I'm happy you stayed with us so far. Looking forward to have you with us again next time. Daniela, thank you very, very much. Thank you, Peter. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Have a nice day. Bye-bye. Ciao. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.